Well, all right. Well, come on back. A lot of fellowship, a lot of fellowship, so that's, that's good. But you have to bring it to a close now. And uh, uh, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. I did myself wrong last week, man. I stopped at one chapter, so I guess that's all we can do this week. I guess I could keep going, but nah, we'll, 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 yeah, go to Esther, yeah. But here, let me just remind you of these dates. Are you sick of this? See, if you, if you know this, you'll know the Bible way better if you know the dates. So get your pens out, even if they're different color. There you go. And, uh, and uh, remember these dates. Remember, the Jews are returning from Babylon, but they're not dominated or, or oppressed by the Babylonians anymore. That, they've switched. The world power has switched. The, Babylons were, the Babylonians were defeated by the Persians. And the king of Persia then... Cyrus, in 538 B.C., says, okay, you can go back, and there's a whole story about that. Cyrus, his name's even in the Bible, and he was shown it probably, but whatever. He allows the Jews to come back to, to Israel, or to the land of Canaan, and uh, set up in Jerusalem and uh, build their temple again. That's 538 B.C. That's the first wave, and that happens under a guy named Zerubbabel. Remember this? And that took place in the first six chapters of Ezra. And the temple was completed in chapter 6 of the book of Ezra. But then we learn of a second wave of exiles coming back from Babylon in 458 or so B.C. under Ezra himself. That's chapters 7 through 10 of Ezra. And then we get to the third wave of returnees, uh, from Babylon under Nehemiah, and that is the book that we're currently studying. And the first seven chapters of Nehemiah is all about construction, tools, building back the walls, not the temple, that's already been built in Ezra, building back the walls and the gates. We've talked about that at length. And so, uh, you know, and because uh, we've been studying it, not only is it a picture of history of what actually happened, these returnees coming, but it's a picture, right, of how anyone comes out of the darkness. Babylon's always a picture of sin. Or out of the land of the enemy, Satan, and comes back to the Lord or comes to the Lord for the first time. And we talked about that. And the first thing that's established is the temple. And the Bible tells us that we're now, in the New Testament, uh, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And there's this one great reality that we all should know. When we surrender our lives to everything that Christ has for us, do you realize this? You no longer are your own. I don't know that American Christians know that very well. That's a fundamental fact. You're no longer your own. You were bought with a price. But see, that's where the joy of the Lord comes in, because you know the one who knows you, <laughs> right? He, he knows you, he loves you, and he bought you with a price, the price of his son, Jesus. 
Well, that's the temple. That's Ezra. But then the walls. Remember, we're made up of body, soul, and spirit. And the spirit is that first thing that needs to be established, right? The temple. That's what Ezra shows you. But then what happens? There's this process called sanctification. In one sense, you are sanctified when you become saved. You're set apart, yes, but you become sanctified. You become more and more like Christ, and guess what it involves? Your soul, which is consisted or consists of your mind, your will, and your emotions, all given over to the Lord, especially our will. Not especially, but including our will. See, a lot of Christians like to read the back of the magazine and go, oh, great, I have eternal life. But then when you say, okay, now, so will you obey him? Well, it depends, they say. What are you asking me to do, obey? Like, I I don't know. I mean, I have a a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and I'm living with them. And and I know, I'm a, but, but obey? See, that's our will when we give our will over to the Lord. Everything is becoming sanctified, and that's Nehemiah building the walls of a Christian life. And it's so amazing as they tell us about all the different gates in Jerusalem that were established to protect these people. They're all things that we institute in our lives. Actually, that's not a good way of saying it. It's, it's all things that as we abide in Christ become instituted in our lives by the Lord. Sharing the gospel, waiting for his return, Remember all these? Um, Becoming fishers of men, uh, the valley gate, you know, uh, living with the Lord and suffering, and on and on. We talked about that. Isn't that beautiful? But the last half of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah not building the walls anymore. It's about Nehemiah building up the people that are inside the walls, a spiritual revival, an awakening inside of Jerusalem, and that's what this is about. So we've been talking about that uh, for some weeks. And do you remember this? Do you remember this when the revival started or when Nehemiah started uh, these things that were leading to the revival? It starts in chapter 8. The first thing they do is they read the law again. They read the word of God. They take the word of God seriously again. There's faithful preaching of the word of God and there's faithful receiving of the word of God. Both are key. You know, we try to here, you know, we're just a startup little church started in a, a, a living room. We start to try a school of ministry so we can train up people who can teach, not just one person, but lots of people who can teach and deliver the meat and the milk to, to both young and mature Christians at the same time. And then, but, but there's a responsibility when you come to church, and that's to receive well. And the book of Nehemiah tells us that. By the way, all revivals tell us that. And so in Ezra chapter 8, he reads the law again. I find it great. You know, Nehemiah, timeout, rabbit trail. <laughs> Nehemiah is the book to look for for spiritual leadership. What does a true spiritual leader look like? And here's one that I think I don't want you to miss. <laughs> it's that Ed, Nehemiah, this amazing leader, gets to the part where the revival has to happen, there would be this intoxicating tendency for him to read the law. But he doesn't. He knows what he's called to do, and so he calls for the spiritual leader, Ezra. 
to come and read the law. I think that's really important, and they do. And then they celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a remembering of all that God has provided for them. But watch this. As the standard of God is uh, uh, raised up to them again in the book of the law, as soon as the standard of God is raised up to them, guess what happens? They have an outbreak of confessing of sin, of real repentance. That's chapter 9. By the way, it's found in every awakening and every revival. Not just saying you're sorry for your sin. That's not repentance, folks. If you're sorry you got caught or if you're sorry it's happened, not repentance. Clearly not. The Bible tells us there is a a sorrow that leads to repentance. Do you get it? There is sorrow that leads to repentance, but repentance is changing your mind and walking towards God and saying to him, I'll do whatever you ask. I'll obey because I have sinned and I recognize it. Well, that's in chapter 9. And they give this amazing prayer. And, or he uh, says this amazing prayer in chapter 9. And then in chapter 10, they make a covenant with the Lord. Now, this is important for chapter 13. The covenant that they make is a picture of what we're to do. To obey. To say, okay, there's been this great receiving of the word because there was this faithful teaching of the word, chapter 8. There's this sense now that I recognize as he holds up the law in the word of God to us, there's this sense that we've fallen short of the standard. That's chapter 9. But then they say, oh, because we see that, we commit to a covenant and I want you to go over there in chapter 20 or verse 28 of chapter 10 because this is important for the story tonight. You got to know this. Look at this. This is the covenant they make. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, brethren, nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. They committed to do God's law. And, uh, excuse me, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord and his ordinance and statutes. And listen, look, watch this. This is important. We wouldn't give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land nor take their daughters for our sons. If the peoples of the lands bought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we wouldn't buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forgo the seventh year's produce and the exacting of every day. And we made ordinances for ourselves yearly, one-third of a shekel. And you could read the rest of that. And then look down in verse 35. And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits. And this is just talking about, I'll just tell you, about giving. And look, in the last verse here, it says, and the singer, or, and, and we will not neglect the house of our God. Do you see that? It's important. Because this is chapter 10, then in chapter, they make this oath with the Lord. They say, we'll do it. Everything we've heard here, we'll do, especially we'll separate from other people. Now listen, this isn't some racist thing. Okay, you're going to see what happens here in chapter 13. God isn't racist or anything like that. 
We're one in Christ. Doesn't matter what we look like, how much money we have, uh, you know, what body shape we have, what clothes we wear, where we go to uh, school. You know, I mean, you go to an amazing school like Wittenberg, or maybe you go to Pitt or something like that. It's a joke. I went to Wittenberg. Come on, somebody laughs. There we go. I was thinking Yale, but I substituted Wittenberg. But anyway, uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter what school you go to, nothing, we're one in Christ. But look, God said in the Old Testament, separate, and here's why. God is asking them uh, uh, to make sure that the Messiah can get through the families, the 12 tribes, get through those families, especially Judah, because Christ has to come through there. And we all see what happens in the Old Testament every time the Israelites start to marry outside of their families. They start getting uh, influenced by the other families or other uh, ites, should I say, including folks, King Solomon, who got really influenced by other gods through, other, through wives that he wasn't supposed to marry. And the principle for us now in the Old Testament is, or excuse me, in the New Testament is, you, you certainly know this because we've talked about it a number of times. The Bible says for us, and you ready to submit your will, ladies and gentlemen, for those of us who are single, you ready to submit your will now? Do not be yoked with an unbeliever. I mean, just don't. What's that mean? You have a yoke, and you're spiritually in the same position, and you're, you're moving along in the same direction. Don't be yoked with an unbeliever. Now, the Bible has us covered if you were yoked with an unbeliever and you got married or something like that. And he says a lot of things about that as well. But the point is, he was here saying, I need you uh, to stay with inside these families so that we can get the Messiah there, and so you're not influenced because the enemy of our souls wants to come in and not get the Messiah to ever come through your line. Get it? By the way, in the kings, it almost happened. They were down to one baby. We talked about that when we were in kings. One baby left in the, in the, in the correct line, and God, in his infinite mercy and grace, spurred them on, and uh, uh, brought the Messiah, of course. Well, the other things, you know, keep the Sabbath and giving. Okay, now, in chapter 11, he populates Jerusalem. He's told to populate Jerusalem, and he does it. Get people back into the city. They didn't want to move into the city. Isn't that interesting? They didn't want to move close to where the Shekinah glory was, the temple. They didn't want to move towards the temple. They wanted to stay out in the suburbs. Wow. Uh, what, a, what a picture. The, then he sets up the priests and the Levites, gets them working and doing their thing. And then in chapter 27 of, or excuse me, in verse 27 of chapter 12, Nehemiah begins to dedicate the wall, and it becomes this amazing time of celebration. And then there were thanksgiving choirs, remember, and they walked around the walls in separate uh, directions, and we talked about that and how... Ezra led one, and Nehemiah came behind on the other side of the wall, and we talked about how that's a picture of the Holy Spirit, leading and guiding, but also comforting when we fall in the back. Isn't that beautiful? And Nehemiah is a picture of the Holy Spirit. His name means comforter. Ezra means dove. And so we're seeing principles of the Holy Spirit all throughout. Okay. They said I'd have trouble 
with one hour on chapter 13, but we haven't even started chapter 13. So here it comes. On that day, verse 1, chapter 13, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. Do you get this now? See, you should know this. If you know this, you're really going to unlock some keys in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy uh, says that uh, Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 4, says this actually, that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God. They were looking through the Bible. They were looking through the first five books of the Bible. And, and why is that? If you understand why no Ammonites or no Moabites can come into the assembly, is God being exclusive? No, God was remembering something that had happened earlier on that the Ammonites and the Moabites did. When they came into the assembly of God, or they shouldn't come into the assembly of God, why? Because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water. Deuteronomy 23, you can go read it. God refers to it. But hired Balaam against them to curse them. Now that story about Balaam comes up so much all throughout the Bible, you really should know it. It's found in Numbers 22, 24. The Moab, by the way, who are the Ammonites and the Moabites? They're the two sons, Ammon and Moab are the two sons of Lot who came about because of an incestuous relationship Lot had with his daughters, Moab and Ammon. And those two, those two then uh, families moved outside of the land of Canaan to the other side of the Jordan, and their eternal enemies, they're, they're enemies of, of, of the Jews, and yet they're related, so to speak. You get that? And they're always at war throughout the Bible. And the king of Moab, as uh, the Israelites are moving out uh, of, of Exodus and trying to get up into the promised land, the king of Moab hires a prophet. He hires this prophet called Balaam, and he asks Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. You know this story, right? And he tries to do it several times, the prophet does. He tries to <gasps> curse them, and every time he goes to curse them, blessing comes out. Right, every time he goes to the curse, some blessing comes out. And you know that story. But see, that's not the end of the story. That's in Numbers 22 through 24. In Numbers 25, and then again in Numbers, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 31, you have to read them together. Listen to this. Balaam said, ah, oh, I told you, king. I couldn't do it. And it says in those succeeding chapters and paragraphs that Balaam, though, said, I know you can't get them the way you wanted to get them. I'm paraphrasing here. But here's what you ought to do. Have them be friendly with, your, uh, with the ladies of your, of your families. Have them be friendly with that. And we know they won't be able to resist. And it happened. And see, God never forgot, forgot that. Also, as they were traveling in the wilderness, apparently, they were asking for some water and things like that, and both the Ammonites and the Moabites weren't um, uh, hospitable. 
Okay, so that's what's happening, in our, and, and that, that stuck with God. It's several places in the Bible, this spirit of Balaam. And, and, and oh, by the way, it's kind of a picture of what people do in church. It's the picture of compromise. Oh, I know. I mean, I'm part of the family of God. I come to church every Sunday. But, you know, I mean, when I walk out of here, I mean, I'm just going to compartmentalize the church, but when I go out of there, you know, I'll just do the same things I always do and hang with the same people I always hang with and uh, be the same person that I'll always be. And that's kind of a picture of that story of Balaam, you know. He is there with the people of God, but he's not fully there with the people of God, and he entices other people to get involved in things they shouldn't. Get it? And God didn't like it. And so he tells us here, so it was, verse 3, that when they had heard the law, that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. What's that talking about? Well, mixed multitude, people who kind of believe, but don't really believe. You know what I mean? By the way, I just said it. (laughs) There's a lot of people in church today who are of the mixed multitude category. You know some indicators? Boy, am I going to get in trouble for this, but oh well. Here it comes. You know what are some indicators of mixed multitude? Never serve. Come to church and consume, 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 consume. Know they're called. Too much time. Or, I don't know, whatever. I mean, you know, I know people are busy and that sort of thing. That's one. Never serve. How about this one? And we're not, we don't talk about this very much here, but it just happens to be coming up now. Never give or give sparingly. Hmm. Interesting. You know, one of the things, we'll see it here, one of the things always indicating a spiritual decline, less giving. I'm not talking about just for a church. I'm talking about in your own life. You think I'm talking here to get you uh, to give more money? Well, that's not the reason. Uh, By the way, I'll just brag on the Lord here. People come to us during the pandemic. Oh, my gosh, we're so sorry. We're like, "What what are you talking about? Well, giving must be down. No, giving ain't down. Giving's up. I don't even know how it happens. In fact... During the pandemic, as the board uh, here has decided that we should be an abiding church who helps other people, and we've given more this year uh, to missionaries and other places than we've ever given, but we have more in the coffers. How does it even happen? I don't know. Well, I do know, but you know what I'm saying. I look at the end of the month or the end of the week, and they just show me the number. I don't see who gives. I just see the number, and I go, what? How can this be? So I'm not, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm encouraging you, all of you. It seems healthy here because the giving never has dipped at all. <laughs> and so uh, that's, that's been amazing. But no service, no giving. Lack of uh, studying the word. Not interested in studying the word. That's one. Not interested in serving. Not interested in being part of prayer and worship. Why? Because you're starting to be dry spiritually, Right? Okay, mixed multitude. But the normal, everyday experience that all of us can have, it doesn't have to be for Paul, or doesn't have to be for Peter, doesn't have to be all those guys and gals in the book of Acts, it can be for us, is a victorious, 
spirit-filled, zealous Christian. That's what God wants for us. Normal, spirit-filled, zealous, sharing Christian. Oh, one other one, other one by the way, mixed multitude. Lack of sharing faith. That's certainly another one. You know, you know why I say lack of sharing faith? Because when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Lord just starts to come out of you. I mean, you can't help it. It's not like you're like, okay, I got to get my um, uh, four spiritual laws here. There's that person over there on the bus. Okay, I'm going to go get them. No, it just starts coming out of you. It just starts coming out. Oh, man, the Lord, the Lord. And, and then just people are asking and you can share and it's just all of that. Is it wrong to share with somebody on the bus? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it just comes out of you on the bus. All right, you're looking at me like, go on. Okay, I'll do it. Now, verses 1 through 3 here, big, uh, you know, uh, split of authority. Where, where does this fall in time? Because the first sentence says, on that day, and nobody exactly knows what that means. Does it mean on the same day as Nehemiah dedicated the wall? That's one school of thought. Other school of thought is, this is just a parenthetical appendix or, uh, to Nehemiah chapters 1 through 12. Anybody here ever been on a, a women's retreat? Go ahead, put your hands up. Men's retreat, youth retreat, you ever been that? Or you've been on some sort of spiritual high? And you know, you're just so, you know, harp is over, you know, you could play a harp and there's halos over your head and you're coming down from the retreat and everything's just great and, you know, uh, you, you walk in and you know, the house is wrecked and the kids are screaming and the water tank busted and you're like, what is going on, right? And people are, right? You ever had that happen and you think to yourself, why can't the retreat last? Why can't I have the same zeal down here that I have up there or over there? <laughs> you ever said that to yourself? Well, I've said that to myself. But here's, and, and you know, we, we've said that here when our kids go to California, you know, we started sending our <laughs> Olivia to California, just Olivia. She was the trailblazer. And then Beck joined, and then some others joined. And then the last year that they had the program, we sent 20 people from this little fellowship out to the state of California. And I would always say, Jan and I would always say, okay, that's wonderful, parents. But see, the real work isn't out there. The real work is when you come back here. It's easy to be a Christian with palm trees and beaches. But what about when you have to come back here and go to school and somebody doesn't like you? See, that's where the gospel is lived out. And this chapter is about this. The Bible is so real, man. And here's why. Look at this just real quick down in verse 6, I believe. Yeah, verse 6. But during all this, Nehemiah writes... I was not in Jerusalem, uh, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Now, you remember the king let him go, but the king said, now, how long are you going to be there? And so most people, most people, there are some different uh, dates on this, but for most people, listen, Nehemiah 5.14 tells us the year that he 
gives us an orientation as to when Nehemiah had left and, and been in uh, uh, Jerusalem. So what I'm trying to tell you is his first time there was probably about 12 years of being there at one time, but at some point he went back to Babylon because he, he told the king he would go back to Babylon. How long he stayed in Babylon, we don't know. He says, during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. He just says that. We don't know. Most people believe, though, uh, that he spent a couple years there, and then he came back, and uh, about five more years he spends. But whatever. I just want you to see that he went away and he came back. There's two governorships, so to speak. His first stint and his second stint, and this chapter deals with the second stint, and that's what I'm trying to get at. Okay, so watch. Amazing story. So chapter 1 through 3, I don't know where that fits. Maybe it fits on the day of the Feast of Tabernacle, or the, 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 when they dedicate the, the city. But maybe it's when he comes back. Nobody really knows. But still, they were dealing with a mixed multitude. But now, before this, look at this. Eliashab, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God was allied with Tobiah. And some of you who haven't been following along go, why is the guy getting so excited? Well, Tobiah was a Samaritan. There we go. From Samaria. Okay? And he he was an enemy of Nehemiah. Folks, listen, he was an enemy of Nehemiah. He tried to discourage him. He made fun of him. He he got angry with him. He wrote, do you remember? He wrote the open letter that went back to the king that basically said, hey, this guy Nehemiah is two-timing you. He's stabbing you in the back, and he's trying to set himself up as the leader, and he's, he's disobeying you. And it was an open letter so everybody could read it. Do you like when people talk about you or gossip about you? Okay, this was open slander. This is this guy, Tobiah. And when Nehemiah comes back from Babylon, can you imagine, folks, first of all, no Gentiles allowed in that temple part of the area, just the Levites. But not only that, the high priest, the priest himself, had made an alliance. It says he was allied with Tobiah, which everyone agrees means he's related somehow now because it's suggested through several verses that Tobiah's family married in to Eliashib's family. So he either had a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law or something, but that word allied right there means kin, married into. So why Nehemiah's gone, can you imagine this? He's built that wall, 52 days, hard work, vision, opposition, you know, getting all the people together, the materials, pouring out his life, 12 years, spending the time building up the people. He goes back to fulfill the commitment that he'd given to to, uh, uh, the people in Babylon, the king of Babylon, and he comes back, and the first thing that he sees is his enemy is living in the temple. How, how? How you know the the you ever had that feeling when you you know that pit in your stomach when you know that you know that you know you've turned your back and something bad's happened? Okay, that's what's happening here. And not only is his enemy, the enemy 
in the temple, but the priest let him in there. Can you imagine how deflated, how, how, you know, throw his papers or whatever up in the air and just turn his back and go away? No, he didn't do that. Here's this Eliashab, and he knows that his enemy has somehow married into the family. Oh, by the way, folks, just time out again. He just harps on it. He just keeps doing it, singles, marrieds, everybody. Listen, how does the enemy attack through relationships? Compromise your relationships, people of God, and see what happens. You get it? And here, here he goes. They married in the enemy of his soul, and he prepared for him a large room. Look at this where previously they had stored the grain offerings. In other words, he marries into the family. Eliashab says, hey, you don't have a place to stay? I got the perfect place for you. We'll clean out the storerooms in the temple. We don't need those so much anymore. You know why they didn't need it so much anymore? Because the people neglected their promise to tithe. So you're violating the law. You're not allowed to have an Ammonite Moabite, (laughs) Uh, you're violating the law again in that you're not allowed to have anyone who's not a Levite in the house of God. This is one who wants to do harm to all of the people of God and the priests, the supposed ones who were in charge of the spiritual condition and protection shepherding the people had started to compromise and let everything slide. You see, i got to tell you, folks, somebody called me today, a mentor of mine. He said, what's the hardest thing you have to do as a pastor? Here it is. Here it is. Because on one hand, see, we don't have membership here, so it's kind of strange. You know, some people come in and... You know, you're saying to yourself, man, am I their pastor or not? Just being honest with you. Because, <laughs> you know, if I'm their pastor, and I want to help them, and I want to appropriately minister to them and counsel them. And then you see somebody, you know, walking down a wrong path. And there's this side of you that just says, you know what I say? Oh, Lord, do I really got to ask? <laughs> do I really have to talk to them about that? Really, Lord? I don't want to do it. I just want to, you know, sit here on the couch and veg for a while. Do I really got to talk to him? But see, here's the problem. The leaders, spiritual leaders, we're not into some weird shepherding thing, but we're called to counsel you the right way to live. By the way, we should be living right. So if we're not, something's wrong. We're here to counsel you, not lord it over you. We're, we're here to see that you're, you're, you're joyful. And, and one of the ways in which quickly you can go down the wrong path is through relationships. Whew. Lord, help me. <laughs> and Lord, help us. Right? So here they do it. Uh, he gives this over, this storehouse which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers, all these things and the offerings for the priests. Remember this, priests didn't get any property when they came into the the land. You remember, into the promised land. They got no property. Priests, 
Levites get no property. What did the Lord say? The Lord is your portion, Levites. So what did the Levites depend on? The tithes and the offerings. And now people aren't giving. And now the, the high priest looks around and says, well, we've compromised here. Let's clean out one of the storerooms and your enemy can come live. Ooh. And what a picture that is of getting the stuff out of our hearts that needs to come out, the temple. Okay. I knew, well, it's 8 o'clock, okay. But during all this, I wasn't in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashab had done for Tobiah in preparing a room. And it grieved me bitterly. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. It grieved him bitterly. Here's Nehemiah, and he comes back, and he's hurting you know why he's hurting? He's hurting because you might think, well, my goodness, his enemy's right front and center. Yeah, he's hurting for that, but the spiritual condition of the country, the people had declined, and especially the leaders all that time. So he's bitter. And therefore, look what he did. <laughs> Nehemiah acted swiftly and decisively. In fact, it doesn't even say he, say, he prayed about it. He just did it. He goes and he throws everything out of the room and he actually he cleansed the room like fumigated the room and brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. He, it reminds you of the time that Jesus cleans, cleans out the temple or the money changers at the temple, right? Because they were prohibiting people from seeing who God really was in Jesus' time and the same here. This isn't some flop house. This is to worship the Lord. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. Remember, back in chapter 10, they had said, we'll do it. Everything. We won't neglect the house of God. We will give our tithes. We'll give the temple tax. We'll do all those sorts of things. We'll give our first fruits. No problem. We'll do it. Just a few years later, nobody's doing it, or very little of the people are doing it, which speaks to us, doesn't it, about when the Bible calls us to be alert and to be sober, and not to be under any other influence other than the influence of the Holy Spirit, to watch and wait, to pray and watch and be sober, be alert. You know that your enemy of your soul is alert, and he's looking for any little foothold to get on you. By the way, your flesh, if you let it, if you're not reckoning it dead, according to Romans, it'll pop back up if you want to let it. So walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And the world, your three enemies, the world, the flesh, the devil, they're all right there ready to tell you something different than the Lord's plan. Well, each of the Levites, so I contended, look at this in verse 11. I realized that the portion for the Levites in verse 10 hadn't been given them for each of the Levites and singers. Listen to this, contention. This is what I was telling this guy on the phone today. I never knew there would be so much contention, <laughs> no much confrontation. I just didn't know it. I just thought I was going to teach the Bible and go home and relax. So I contended with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine, and I appointed as treasurers, look at this, new treasurers. I got the old ones out and I pulled in new ones. The priest, the scribe, the Levites, all these guys. Why? For they were considered faithful. 1 Corinthians 4.1, write it down. 
Success in the Christian life is not improving numbers, getting more TV time, getting published in a magazine. It could be that. But success in the Christian life is being faithful. That's it. You're, you, the Lord's called you to do a home fellowship or a ladies' fellowship, let's say. Ladies' fellowship. The Lord's called you to do ladies' fellowship two, 12 o'clock at, at noon on Fridays. I'm making something up. And, you know, you do one and five people come, and then the next week two people come, and you start to say to yourself, should I even be doing this? No, if the Lord's called you to it, faithfulness is to continue to do it if the Lord's calling you to it. Right? Don't worry about the number of people or how successful it is in the eyes of man. No, just be faithful in it. Here, these guys were faithful. They were probably, just like the New Testament, conditions for faithful people. They loved the word. They were humble guys. They, they uh, 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 didn't have great egos. They were servants of the Lord. They were men of integrity in the Lord so that they, we could trust it with money, all those things. But they were faithful, and their task was to distribute to the brethren. Well, remember me, O oh my God, concerning this, and don't wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. I don't think he's saying, hey, I'm just so fantastic. I think what he's saying here in his prayers, and by the way, Nehemiah is a man of prayer. I don't think here uh, in his prayer he's saying, look at me, how great I've been doing, Lord. No, I think what he's saying is, Lord, I've tried. I'm doing what you're calling me to do. If I've missed anything, Lord, you remember the things that I missed and the things that I've done well. That's what I'm convinced he's saying. I don't think he's saying, look how good I am, Lord. Okay, but keep going. In those days, I saw the people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves. Remember, they had said they would honor the Sabbath, but now they've let in all this kind of commerce. <laughs> on the Lord's day, they were supposed to keep the Sabbath, Rest on the Sabbath to make it holy. That's a commandment. But now you got all kinds of commerce, wine presses, which they brought into Jerusalem to sell. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling these provisions. There were people from Lebanon, men of Tyre, dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of good and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended, there it is again, with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what an evil thing is that you do, you're doing? You're profaning this Sabbath. Didn't your fathers do thus and did not your God bring all his disaster? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by by profaning the Sabbath. So here's what, here's what he did. How practical is this? He, he's not happy about it. He contends with the people. He just tells them, man, this is wrong. <clears throat> then he goes and shuts the gates. <laughs> he shuts the gates so they can't get in during the Sabbath. I shut them, and then verse uh, then he posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. So he went outside the gates and said, get away. He's pretty bold, man. Agreed? What a leader. Then I warned them, why do you think he was such a great leader? He See, he cared. That's how we started this whole series. God found a man in Babylon listen to this, who cared. He wasn't perfect, 
didn't have it all together, didn't know all the answers. How in the world am I going to go back and build a wall? I didn't say all that. But Lord, look for the person who cared. And here he cares. He cares about these people. He cares about the things of God. It's not, it's not manipulative or phony or fake. It's real. He loves the Lord and he loves people. And so he protects them. He wants to do what the Lord has. So he goes outside. Get out of here. Why do you spend the night? If you do again, I'm going to beat you up. I'll lay hands on you. That's, I think, beat you up. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. Isn't that funny? And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. In those days, I also saw a Jew, or saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, the enemies of God. They married them. They were told not to. And listen, this, this is sad. And half their children, not because of the racial overtones, they didn't speak the language of Ash, or they spoke the language of Ashdod, but not of Judah. The Hebrew, their, their language declined. They couldn't even speak it. One generation there. Make sure, by the way, see, we want to raise the kids up to speak the language of God, folks. Teach our kids what baptism means and salvation and uh, justification and glorification and sanctification and propitiation. You can do it. I know you can do it. Teach it to them. When you're, you don't even have to make it heavy. When you're eating, just do, I mean, come on. In our house, we compete over it. No, I'm kidding. But we kind of do. But, you know, just get, get them to know. Get them to know. Let them speak the language of the people of God. That's what they're saying here. Okay, watch this. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. That's funny. You know why it's funny? Ezra, kind of the same thing. He encountered the same thing. Guess what Ezra did? He plucked out his hair and beard. Nehemiah plucked, pulled their hair which is another interesting thing that we can uh, think about leadership. Just because your leadership style is different from my leadership style, God could use both. Here's Nehemiah is just kind of Ezra, although he was confrontational, he was. Just a different style. God can use both. Okay, how about this? And made them swear by God, saying, You won't give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? Again, one of the great ways the enemy of our souls gets in and wrecks us is through relationships. So we ought to be teaching our kids how to have right relationships, right? Okay, and one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashab, or however you say it, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat. Oh, my. The high priest not only let Tobiah in, but the one Tobiah served, the other great enemy of, of the Jews, Sanballat, Eliashab is related through marriage. And therefore, look, he, look, look what Nehemiah does. He runs after him and chases him away, the son-in-law guy. Isn't that funny? Nehemiah got after it. 
29, remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, or remember me, O my God, for good. Now, I've got two points, and I'll close. The first point is, you say, well, come on, man. Their great spiritual leader went back to Babylon. He quit on them. Ah, but you need to know the rest of the Bible. Because guess who came down here at this time and prophesied to these people? Malachi. Malachi. And Malachi said a number of things. Malachi talked to them about their poor worship. That's in chapter 1, verses 6 through 14. Hey, you won't even have to go to the Bible college. I'll just give it to you. They, he uh, prophesied about the corrupt priesthood in chapter 2, 1 through 9. And he prophesied about improper marriages with foreign folks who they weren't supposed to be marrying, chapter 2, 10 through 16. And then robbing God by not tithing, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Malachi prophesies. Some people believe he prophesied at the time that Nehemiah went back in between his first and second governorship. Some people believe then. Some people believe Malachi came behind. But either way, God didn't leave him. He kept reminding them. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, but then here's the last thing I think you should know, and this is the best. You see, I read something like this, and I go, oh, man. Good, here's what I do. And if I do those things, everything's going to be fantastic. That ain't it. We don't live under the law anymore, folks. We live under the covenant of grace. And what is grace? Here's what grace is. Love that acts. That does something. Love that acts. And the grace of God is sort of like this. Everything, folks, you need out there for salvation, here's what I'll do, God says. He goes, I'll do everything. You just receive it. Oh, and by the way, now that we live in this covenant of grace, everything you need for life and godliness, oh, how, by the way, I'll give you everything you need. You just walk in it. So before you start thinking, well, okay, if I do this, I do that, I do that. I I get it. There are principles to live by. No one's saying that. See, we live by grace. The Lord even gives you the ability to make the right decisions. If you're walking in the Spirit, He gives us wisdom. He gives us, can you imagine, one of my favorite qualities of Nehemiah is this, because I'm not good at it. Nehemiah gets all this criticism, all this criticism, all this criticism. You're looking in the Bible, at least I am, at where does he get a reply back on these people? And the answer is nowhere. He doesn't reply. He actually does reply. He just says, it's not true. And then he goes and keeps working. It's my favorite thing about Nehemiah. He was so, look at this, he was so secure in his relationship with God He knew he was called, came all this way. He was called. He wasn't just, 
you know, instruct. He was called. There was this calling on his life. He knew where he was supposed to be and what he was supposed to be doing. And he knew if God directed him and guided him, God would provide and work it out. And so here he is, and he's getting criticism, and there's no retort. There's no reply. There's no coming back. You ever been in a boy's locker room? I hope many of you haven't. What a boy's locker room It's all about, cutting people down. That's what it's about. Joking around, doing this, you're, you know, you're, you know, kind of jokes, jokes. It's cutting, it's cutting, it's all that. You know what that shows? And I'm a big participant in that, by the way, or was. How insecure people are. When we get criticism, you know one of the great things that the gospel is? <laughs> it should allow us to deal with criticism. Because we are working or doing our thing or doing our calling for God, not for people. Of course, we're going to benefit people. Yes, we're going to benefit people. But we want to be faithful. When we get there, we don't want him to say, hey, you were so nice to that group of people. No, we just want him to say, right, faithful servant. You did what I asked. And I love that about uh, Nehemiah. And the reason I'm telling you that is because he was so secure in his relationship with the Lord. And all of you... By the grace of God, God does everything, also will be secure in your relationship with the Lord. Ephesians 3 tells us this, what? What should you be? What should you be? What should I be? Rooted and grounded in the love of God. Grace, love, and action. Rooted and grounded in love uh, uh, in God, which tells us the grace of God. Look at this. I said this last week or two weeks ago. It tells you so many things, but it tells you these things. You belong now. By the grace of God, you belong. I don't care who you are. You're out in the periphery of life. You're not in the cool crowd. Doesn't matter. You belong, man, and we're all equal here. How do I know that? As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. You belong if you're in Christ, you belong. But if you're in Christ, you are valuable. God demonstrated his own love towards us. And why you were yet an ugly, gross, spiritual sinner. God died for you. by sin, or Christ died for you. Christ gave up his life for you. You're valuable. It also tells you, you have the, the gospel tells you they have the resource to live the, 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 the Christian life because he gives you the Holy Spirit. You see how it's all grace? And you see how it roots you in love? And so you can do things like receive criticism now. Don't you hate criticism? You know what you do with criticism? We say it here. We've said it several times. Agree with the people. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you're a dirty, rotten, blah, 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 blah. Wow. You don't know the half of it, man. I'm worse than that. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. See, that's the message here. The message here is that these people had to live by the law, and they kept going back. You don't live by the law. You live by grace. So God's going to fill you up if you'll keep walking in the Spirit. He'll fill you up to live the life you couldn't live before. That you could never live under the law. You had no resource and ability to do it. And Nehemiah, as we finish, what a guy. We could, we could go on for hours about his leadership skills. 
But just think of someone, my favorite, doesn't respond to criticism, just keeps working. Very humble, wasn't he? God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. He has vision. You know, the Proverbs tells us that people will perish if there's no vision. He has a vision because he knows he's called. He's submitted to God. Jesus said, not as I will, but as you will, Lord, and we have the mind of Christ. That's what we're to be. Not as I will, Lord. My will is being laid down for your will. He did this. He can handle these complex situations, right? Can you imagine building the walls around Jerusalem and getting all those families to build? Man, oh man, and it took 52 days. He could do complex things. What does the Bible tell us? tells us that the Holy Spirit will give you and I wisdom. Just ask for it. God will give you wisdom liberally. He'll give you the wisdom. He depended upon prayer. I mean, you could go on and on. You could see him throughout here. He has long prayers. He has shotgun prayers. He has bullet prayers. You know, just boom, pray. Just always praying, staying in, in, in contact with the Lord. He was organized. Oh, no, I'm in trouble. You know one thing he could do? And I'll, I'll quit after this one because i got tons more. But I think this is powerful that he could do. He could discern the tactics of the enemy. He could see them for what they were. And he didn't get frustrated and mad and angry and downcast or discouraged or stop working. He could see the tactics of the enemy. So folks, by the way, 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, we're not to be ignorant of his devices, the enemy. So folks, let me just ask you a quick question, then we'll close. You know where the enemy is going to attack you? I mean, he's just looking to get any sort of foothold. It's just that thing at REI, you know, that mountain climbing wall, that little nook. You can just put a foot or a toe on there, or a little, you know, whatever you can do. He's looking for it. And one of the places he, you know, is, is where you're weak, of course. You know, like things like, you know, nobody cares for me. That's a real thing that people say. You know what? When we say that, or I'm lonely and nobody loves me, you know, what will happen is, that's not true. You're in our family. We do love you. But then your mind starts to go, and the enemy starts feeding it, doesn't he? Boy, he's got a foothold now. Or maybe it's at your spiritual... Here's another way the enemy attacks. You are on a spiritual high, and you ever said this to yourself? I've said this to myself, and I'm the pastor. So if you, don't, if you say you never said this, I think you're lying. But you say stuff like this. Wow, I'm really doing good there in my Christian life. Oh, my goodness, I've read the Bible three days in a row or 30 days in a row. Or, wow, I went on a mission trip. I mean, aren't I just so wonderful? I'm strong in these areas. Boy, when we get in that spot, we are ripe for a big fall. Here's why. Because the Lord just wants us to keep coming to him every morning with this dependence, this trust that he's our all in all, and we need him every hour. Well, those are the messages of Nehemiah. There's more. Uh, but isn't it so wonderful that we have, the, have God's grace for all that we need. Salvation, 
living and even for our future with him for eternity. Wow, what a blessing. Let's pray. Well, Lord, thank you so much. And uh, just pray, Lord, that you would uh, help us to remember these things. Put them in here, inside. Help us tomorrow, Lord, to have divine appointments to just pour all of this out, to love people and to share with people and to serve people. Lord, help us to be humble servants and humble abiders so we can go and minister to the least and the lost and the lonely. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.